Blog Talk Radio. So I was talking to a young person, and they asked me, what's the funniest movie ever? I said, The Jerk. He said, Anchorman. I learned something that day. Young people are dumb. Also, I want to be quarantined with Steve Martin. He seems nice. I'm Brett Singer. This is my show. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Breath from the Bunker. It is Thursday, May 14th. The year is 2020. I like to even say the year because, you know, we might even forget what that is. We certainly forgot what day it is. And uh, I am joined today by Jim Mendrinos. Jim, how you doing? I'm doing good. Did I hear correctly? You think the funniest movie of all time is The Jerk? Well, that was my gut reaction when he said that. I love that movie. Well, it's a think... great movie. I, you know, I definitely put it in Pantheon. But, you know, it, that got me thinking, what a great question. It is, it is a tricky question. It, it is a very tricky question. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, I'd probably go the original producers from 68 with Zero Mostel. Hard to argue with that. That's, a, that's a, yeah. what am I going to say? No, that's no good. I mean, you know, obviously no, that's a great choice. The scene in The Jerk where he's leaving the house and he's like, all I need is this and this, and he's picking up the most random items. I, I don't think I've ever laughed as hard in a movie than I did in the theater when I saw Steve Martin doing that. The, the, the question was movie that you saw in a theater. And that okay. was because I saw that movie in a theater and I was I was very young and my dad took me. It was an R-rated movie. So it was, so there's a certain there's a little extra juice there for me. You know, there was there's this, it's, it's extra I, special. I, I actually got thrown out of a movie theater for laughing at a comedy. What? Yeah, I don't even know what to do with that. What does that mean? Well, here I'll, I'll tell you the story very quickly. Um, it was in the early '80s, and Monty Python had a movie called "The Meaning of Life," um, sure. which is arguably the worst Monty Python movie, but that's still a pretty damn funny movie. Um, sure. But you know, compared to Life of Brian, or compared to you know Holy Grail, it, it definitely was the third of the trio. But I'm, I'm watching it, and there's a, a scene where Michael Palin's the drill instructor, and he's marching back and forth, and he's like, who wants to, you know, march with Sergeant Major? And one by one, his men are leaving him. And like most Monty Python sketches, they didn't know how to, how to end the previous sketch. So to end the previous sketch, the animated hand of God came down, grabbed somebody, and dragged them up into heaven, which is funny enough. But then Michael Palin's first line was don't just stand there gulping like you've never seen the hand of God before. <laughs> and I just lost it to a degree that I've never lost it before. It just took me by surprise, the total incongruity of it, that I was laughing so hard, so loud, and so long that they thought I was on drugs. <laughs> I love it. I love it. They, they, they literally thought you, you just – so the movie was your drug, Right. I think that's is that a fair thing to say. Um, it, it was. So now one of the questions I ask everyone, and so I will ask you, is how are you holding up? You know what? It's, um, it was rough at first um, because, you know, I, I'm older and I'm also from the theater. So when you first entered the theater, when I, which I did when I was 18, 
most of the people that I was working with were in their early 30s. Now that I'm in my 50s, most of those people are in their early 70s. Most of them live in New York. Most of them, you know, lived through the 80s, which means we didn't exactly take care of ourselves with drugs and alcohol. So right. a lot of them had pre-existing conditions, and I lost 11 people in the first six days of quarantine. Oh, wow. So like, I'd get, yeah, I'd get an AOL ping, and it would just freak me the fuck out. Jesus. Um, cut to, cut to, you know, it got a little bit calmer, and then uh, my lady and I had to move because <laughs> we had signed a lease for a new place pre-quarantine. And they weren't accepting no for an answer. And, of course, you couldn't hire movers during the pandemic. So there's me, her, and the two kids basically loading everything onto trucks and dragging it over. Yeah. So, you know, that was that was awful. But then it, it's like moments of chaos followed by moments of calm. That, that's, that's how some, I'm that's some, ser- that's some serious chaos. I mean, the I, I, it's funny. I've talked to a couple of people who've had to move. And it just it just seems like yeah. what a perfect storm. I mean that that just there's no nothing good you can say about that. I hate moving to begin with, you know, for two reasons. You know, number one, I don't like dragging heavy shit. That's why I became a comic. And number two, I you know I don't like change. <laughs> you know? Right. So both of those things kind of just rub against me. And then during a pandemic, it's it's ridiculously difficult. Now, as a comic, though, you have to deal with a lot of change, right? Yeah. Every time you're on stage, there's nothing but change. Right. Which is so why I, mean, I not... covet, you know, yeah, that's why I covet, you know, the stillness of regular life so much. Because mm. my whole job is there, there's never the same audience twice. It's always a cookie cutter. It's, and you've always, also, it's always a snowflake. You've also done other things. I mean, you've you've written for shows. You've you've done. You're not. You have you have expanded beyond stand up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I have a production company. I've written for television. I, I kind of my life philosophy has always been, you know, the Roman emperor philosophy. Let's taste all the wine. Let's eat all the foods. And if we don't like it, we just don't go back to that one. Hmm. So, so how did you like writing for television, and and where did you write for? Um, I, I wrote for uh, Dennis Miller for the longest time, mostly when he was on SNL. I wrote, you know, uh, my specialty is line writing. I've written for some series like Head of the Class and Roseanne at certain points, but I, I'd much prefer the monologue writing to writing scripts. I do write scripts, and I, I have written scripts, and I do it for my production company all the time now. But that line writing of, of looking at a new story at one o'clock and having it ready by, you know, six o'clock when they're filming, that to me is everything. I love mm-hmm. the excitement of how quickly it needs to get done. Um, so th- those were kind of, those are the best ones, especially early when I was writing for Dennis on uh, SNL. That was, that was a magical time. You know, you're a young kid. You're on the road. You're you're on the phone with Dennis for four or five hours a day, just pounding out joke after joke after joke after joke. It's you know it was one of the most magical educations I could have had in the comedy industry. Oh, so you don't have you don't even have to be in New York. Well, I didn't then. You know, uh, it, it's kind of a long story. But when I came to do the interview with Morn Michaels, 
I was, I think, 23 at the point, at oh, that wow. point. And, and he had just um, come over. If you don't know Lorne Michaels' history, Lorne Michaels was a, a writer on Laughing. And basically, SNL is a clone of Laughing. Um, so he had brought over so many of the older writers from that show. The only younger writers on the staff were the cast. So then when he came back with Dennis Miller and those guys after taking his little hiatus, he wanted to to go with the people he knew. So he was really resistant. So I got a contributing writer job, which basically said, hey, as long as you have access to a fax machine, and every small town in America had a drugstore with a fax machine, and you can fax the requisite number of jokes a day, we will send you a paycheck. And I don't ever have to see you, and I don't have to have a child running through the hallways at 30 Rock. Um, so that was like, it became the best job in the world because he didn't really want me there. Because mm-hmm. it was Dennis's choice and not his. Right. Um, had it been the other way around, where I'd have been his choice and not Dennis's, I'd have been one of those people locked in 30 Rock for six days a week, you know, 22 hours a day, hating life. But you know, at, at that time I got to tour the world, you know, and I was working with some great artists touring the world and, you know, still got to send my jokes in and get extra paychecks. It was one of the most magical jobs I ever had. That's really cool. That's uh, That really does yeah, sound like an amazing gig. Like I, yeah, it literally felt like I was stealing money. It, How many it, jokes it did, a day did you have to like write? 500. Wait a second. Stop that. You had to write 500 jokes a day? 500 topical jokes a day. 500? That is... Yep. Five followed by two zeros. I I am stunned. Wow. How long did that take? Uh, You usually write about 30 jokes an hour or so. Wow. Now, let's, let's be really honest. Nobody ever hit the mark of 500 a day. That's the number that they told you you had to do so that you'd turn in 250 to 300 jokes. If they would have told you 200 jokes a day, you would have turned in 75. It's completely a psychological warfare kind of thing because there's just no possible physical way. I'm sure there were a couple of days where I hit the 500 jokes a day. I'm positive they were, you know, and I'm also the master of cheating which is rewriting the same joke 15 times, and that's 15 jokes. Well, no, it's one joke 15 ways. But, you know, ultimately it was meant to, because he had four writers that had the same designation as I did, he wanted to have literally a couple of thousand jokes a week so that when he picked the 19 jokes that were in his monologue, he had the best jokes. That is just a lot of jokes. I, I, I'm a little hung up on the number. I mean, even, the, you know, you say, oh, well, it was really only 200 jokes. That's a lot of jokes. That's a yeah. lot of things to no, generate no. In, the course of, in the course of a day. But it's not as many as you think it is. It really isn't. If you're looking at the headlines and understanding how somebody does jokes, and Dennis never went into the substance of the issue, you know, as much as people want to talk about how intellectual this stuff is, it was almost always wordplay off the imagery or wordplay off the uh, off the uh, headline. It was rarely anything else. 
You know, I, I think a lot of people are afraid of writing a lot. The But the key to writing a lot is not to censor. When you get the idea, just put it on paper. It's somebody else's job to decide whether or not they want it. Is it easier to do that when you're writing that for someone else? Yeah. Oh, shit, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Because when you're doing it for yourself, you're thinking of every nuance of every word that you're about to do on stage. And stylistically, you know, when you're doing monologue jokes, they're one-liners. They really are 10 to 15-second jokes. You know, uh, you know, in this week's news, Bill Clinton's going to become the first uh, sitting president to go uh, to make a visit to the continent of Africa. Apparently not enough hot black chicks applying for internships at the White House. It's really <laughs> set up punchline. That's all it is. And and so that that is a fuck ton easier with, than my stand-up, because my stand-up is storytelling. Okay. So with the storytelling, that that that's amazing. So when you so when you tell you're writing a storytelling joke or a story, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, that obviously yeah. takes longer, and then the is the process totally different. Yeah, yeah, that is because you want a beginning, a middle, and end. You want to craft it. You want to make sure that everything has resonance and points into a direction of another part of the story. Um, for instance, on the Amazon special, I have not dead yet. I I tell the Mexico story. And um, I tell the short version on the special. It's 9:49. I've done it in clubs, and it's been over. It's been over 45. Oh well. You know, I could do that story for 45 minutes, and little key lines that seem like throwaway lines, you know, are so important for the audience's comfort and understanding. I'm talking about being a 12-year-old runaway who got from New York to Mexico. That's what the story is. Um, and one of the early lines that I had was, you know, uh, I was a runaway as a kid. Clearly, being an asshole, you know, helped my survival skills. It lets the audience know that I'm okay. lets the audience know that I made it to this side. You don't have to be worried about the imagery I'm setting up. And then later on when I talk, I tell a story about, you know, taking a cab ride through the desert in Juarez, and I think the, the cab driver's going to kill me, the audience doesn't actually worry. That's the important thing. And that's obviously a very different consideration than when you're making fun of Bill Clinton. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when, when you're doing one-offs, all you're worried about is, do you understand this punchline based on the setup I gave you? Whereas, you know, in the Mexico story, when I do the full story, um, that line is the third line, the, the line about, you know, survival skills is the third line in the structure. I don't get to the the cab, the desert story till about 25 minutes later. Wow. Now, that's on a special, yeah. you said? What's the name of that special? Uh, not Dead Yet on Amazon Prime. Okay. Um, now, it was fun. I filmed it at the comic strip. And it was like going home again. I was going to say, you you got your start at the comic strip, right? I did. 
that was that was always home for me. It was the first club that passed me, first club that let me MC, the first club. Uh, it was the first club I did a, a headline gig in in New York City um, when briefly in the 90s they were having people close out nights um, and thought they'd be a headliner room, which didn't quite work out for them. But, you know, it's it's always been home. I've been there since I'm 19. Wow. Um, I don't know if you know the owner there, Richie Tinkin, but he and I have yeah, been yeah, friends sure. for years. Um, his, his wife, Jeannie, and I used to – I used to work in the club, too, as a seater on Sundays, you know, to, to try to make myself more valuable to the club. Uh, and she was a waitress. And so we've been running buddies since we're in our early 20s, you know. So it's like – Every time I go there, it's home. It's family. And even when I've had stretches where I haven't, you know, I've, I've been in L.A. for a couple of years, come back, and it's immediately home. Or, you know, like like now I fully expect post-pandemic, the first place I'll probably perform live is the comic strip. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I produce, I, I produce I shows there. I, uh, everybody there is great. I've had, I've had great experiences yeah. there. Um, everybody there has been terrific. Uh, so that's cool. Now you said something, there's an online bio of yours and it said, I had great advantage starting out so young. When you're floundering at 19, people want to help you. When you're floundering at 45, they don't want to as much. And I think that's very yeah. true. Um, so you found, you, you, it sounds like, I mean, comic strip was maybe one of the places that helped you out. Yeah. The comic strip, not just the comic strip, you know, in general, but, you know, it, it's the people in the comic strip. Right. Um, I had a bad time writing for Head on the Class, Head of the Class. When I came back to New York, um, I sat down at a bar with people like Barry Berry and Ron Richards and Richard Morris, who, who aren't household names, but these guys collectively have like 30 Emmys. And they sat down and they went, okay, what was your problem? Oh, here's how you fix it. You know, that education is unbelievably valuable and yes there were a whole lot of people on the road that helped out because i was at the comic strip when i was starting out literally seven nights a week you know if i did another gig i'd go there before i went home because my apartment was three blocks from there and nice. it was free booze Ooh, so that's good it, it, yeah so it was always always the place i went that's great that's great. Yeah. So um, let's see. So you wrote for SNL. You also wrote for Roseanne? Briefly, yes. The last season before they came back, she had hired a crap ton of writers to punch up scripts. And specifically, she wanted me to go over uh, stuff for the John Goodman character. And then John Goodman left about six episodes into the season because <laughs> he really hated the environment. Oh, um, really? So, yeah. If you remember that last season, he was hardly in it. Um, that, that, I do remember so, that, yeah. yeah. So, and, and that was fun. And she's, you want to talk about brilliant in terms of knowing what you want and knowing how to get it? She was. She Now she's a drill instructor, you know, but she's brilliant. You know, I, I crazy, but brilliant. <laughs> she she you know, she was obviously has had so has been in the headlines the last couple of years so in in ways yeah. that maybe you don't want to be in the headlines but uh, but no look the show was great I mean back back in the day I mean it was uh, you know it was a landmark show it was it was very important to comedy um, and yeah, uh, you even wrote for even wrote for Hee Haw 
that was my singular first television writing job. Um, when I was uh, all of uh, 19 years old, I started stand-up, um, and then I I waited online to catch a rising star to go on, and there was a woman waiting online with me, and she was uh, from Nashville, comic from Nashville, and we had spent 10 hours online together. You get your number at 5 o'clock. At 5 o'clock, we got our number. We weren't going to go on until 1 in the morning, so then we just spent the whole because she was from Nashville, I was from New York. I showed her around the town from five to ten. Then ten o'clock, we got catch. We watched the show at the bar from the bar. Uh, you know, we went up last, the next to last, and she's there like, I got to grab a bus home tonight, and I'm there like, I'm nineteen, I ain't got much to do. I'll go with you, and I went down there for a couple of months, and the producer he haw saw me and said, you write jokes really well. You want to write some jokes for Hee Haw, which I did. Um, and I was way too New York for that show. They hardly used any of my stuff, but the kick I got the first time I saw one of my jokes on TV was amazing. Uh, and then when I moved back to New York, they let me fax them in the, the jokes. I used to have to go down to ABC's office on 67th Street and write the jokes and then send them through their newfangled fax machine. Uh, to uh, to Nashville, and they were great jobs. I got to do as much comedy as I could at night, and as long as I gave them what they wanted during the day, I had this paycheck coming in, so I didn't have to wait tables. I didn't have to bartend. I didn't have to do any of the, the safety jobs that everyone else was doing. Yeah, no, it sounds like you, you had kind of a charmed comedy life. Yeah. You know, and and now the pandemic, and everyone's wondering whether or not the comedy will ever be here again. And you figured, let's put on a comedy festival, right? <clears throat> well, here's the the thing: I do a lot of work with younger comics. I teach the comedy class at Gotham Comedy Club, and uh, you know, my production company has hired a lot of young comedians. And when the pandemic hit, I have the I have the experience of time. And in the 80s, when the AIDS crisis hit and, and New York clubs were starting to get empty because everyone was afraid of the AIDS virus, you know, I realized, based on experience, the clubs come back. You know, and after, you know, after the uh, first Gulf War, you know, when all the clubs emptied again because people were afraid of, you know, terrorist retaliation, I realized they'd come back. And after 9-11, you know, when I was living in New York and the buildings came down and the clubs were empty for a little bit, and then I realized everything comes back. So when the pandemic hit, I'm there like, okay, it may take six months, it may take a year, but it's coming back. <clears throat> a lot of younger comics, a lot of guys that started five years ago don't understand that. So I would have comic after comic saying, I finally found the one thing I love, and now that industry's dead. And so this was kind of a way for me to try and put together a little hope for the younger generation. And if you look at it, I sprinkled a whole lot of veterans on the shows, you know, the, the, the Leanne Lords, the Brian Scaleros, the, the Anita Wises are all sprinkled right. on our shows as, as they should be, you know, but I'm, I'm basically trying to cater mostly to that next generation that needs a little bit of hope because I know it's coming back. I know in my heart and I know 
in every fiber of my being it's coming back. You know, a guy who's been doing it for three years isn't getting booked a tremendous amount anyway because he's new. And now sees all the clubs shuttered, isn't going to think the same way. That's the thing. Like I'm a year you know, and a half. In. I'm a I'm a year and a half in. So, um, yeah. I, and so I'm not getting booked booked all over the place. I'm producing shows when I can, and I'm getting on, you know, uh, here and there. But it does kind of feel a little bit like, oh, great, <laughs> you know, like like I like I'm I think it's going to come back. Obviously, like I'm not I'm not sitting. Are there people saying it's never coming back? Because that because I haven't heard anyone say that. Yeah, I've actually heard a few people say that. Really? And it's always younger comics. It's always like the brand new guys. And they're like, no, no. After this, what we need is community and laughter. We'll need that more now than ever. And, I, you know, so when I got together with, with my um, partners at the production company, and they're, they're like, well, what can we do, you know, to help? And there were a couple of charities that we really wanted to help out, Um you know, um, support comedians, which is Ray Ellen's charity that he's raising money for, um, Art Cube Nation, which is a whole lot of theater professionals that, you know, are costume designers and, and set designers that are turning around and making ventilators and PPE equipment for hospitals that, that are in need of them. Um, and uh, God's love you deliver because there's a whole lot of New Yorkers that can't get out of their house. Sure. You know, because they have pre-existing conditions that need food. So we wanted to help those charities, and I wanted to help the morale of the younger comedians. And years ago, we used to run the Underground Festival, and we stopped because running a festival is a crap ton of work. And I do mean a crap ton of work. I don't think me or any of my partners have slept in the past three weeks. Wow. Um, nor will we for the next three weeks. Um, but again... Even with all that work, you know, it, it's just a matter of, okay, let's let's try and get something out there and see what we can raise. And we've raised a few dollars. I mean, not a ton, but it's more than they had um, for the charities. And, you know, hopefully we've raised a little bit of morale. It, you know, it's on a selfish side for me, it's nice getting thank you letters from young comics going, this is my first festival. Thank you. You know, and um, they're like, I just wish it were live, so you, I could see you on stage. Right. So, so I mean, yeah. do you do you like working with young comics because of because of your experience? I mean, because I mean, your experience just sounds so overwhelmingly positive. Are you trying to kind of pass that back to people? Well, I I do believe you know each one teach one. You know, that's kind of an important part. I wouldn't be here if not for advice from, you know, people like Hicks and Kennison and Barry Berry and, you know, countless others, Freddie Roman sitting down and talking to me for hours wow. on end, guys that you would never expect it, you know. Um, I had a bit that was underwritten that I did on stage once at Catch a Rising Star, and when I got off stage, George Carlin, who was watching from the bar, grabbed me, pulled me aside, pulled out a notebook, and basically rewrote the bit with me. Wow. You know, all, all of these things to say that, yeah, I've been truly fortunate in that I've gotten a lot of really positive people. My running buddies were even comics that are great. You know, uh, on my book, you know, the got the County Writing, you know, Chris Rock is quoted in it. We started together. Colin Quinn wrote my forward. We started together. You know, um, 
the, the series that I had, um, which is rerunning on Amazon, um, Living in Exile, was was getting moderate views until Chris Rock tweeted that it may be the funniest TV series you've ever seen. And off that one tweet, all of a sudden, you know, the paychecks started coming in. Right. So I've always had people reaching back and helping me, and I can't see not reaching back and helping others. You know, and that's that's been a huge part of it for me. The other part is I absolutely love comedy. It's what I've wanted to do my whole life. I mean, I was that little odd eight-year-old that would, you know, watch Foster Brooks do a Tonight Show set and then the next day be in the schoolyard doing a Foster Brooks impression, hmm. which is not a way to make friends. It is a good way to get beat <laughs> up if you're a kid. Don't do that. <clears throat> um, but again... You know, I saw Freddie Prinze on the Tonight Show, and he talked about living in a tenement, and I lived in a tenement. He talked about having an immigrant parent, and I have an immigrant parent. He talked about having a crazy super, I had a crazy super. It's like, holy shit, he's living my life. That's that's the kind of stuff that is really important to me and amazing to me. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's really... Because you say you've, you know, it's what you've always wanted to do, but it's also what you've always done. I mean, if you got started at 19, yeah. I mean, have you, you know, did you even ever have another job? I mean, other than just kind of odd jobs when you were younger? No, uh, it, it's been, the, from the time I've been 18, it's been theater, comedy, radio, writing, that kind of thing. You right. know, I mean, I remember one time, you know, you know, my calendar was fairly empty, and I took six weeks of touring across the country doing Defending the Caveman uh, in the road company because it was a survival job. So, you know, my Wait, oh, you, perf- you performed Defending the Caveman? Yeah, when, they, oh, wow. when it ended on Broadway and they sent comics out to tour different parts of the, the, the country with it. Oh, yeah, I had, uh, I had Pennsylvania... I toured in Pennsylvania, um, Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia. I did those four states. And then I did one show filling in for somebody who was sick later in in Alabama. But, again, it was, you know, memorizing that script and going up and performing it. And here's the weird thing. That was a survival job. That was a, holy crap, I don't have anything in my calendar. Let me take this. Um, And for most people, when you tell them, oh, I did a, a six-week off-Broadway touring road show. They're, they're like, oh, so you made it. You know, my survival job have been what most people want to do for a living in the arts. Right. And that's been really odd, but incredibly fun. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. Um, tell me a little more about the festival. Like, what's sort of the elevator pitch? Well, it's a... Uh, it's a two-week celebration of uh, laughter, comedy, and hope, you know, and we're trying to raise money for some charities. We're trying to give opportunity to a lot of young comedians. For instance, tonight, there is a live Zoom show called the Second Chance uh, Show. If you go to Eventbrite, you can get a ticket. I think there's like 15 tickets left um, where we are having 15 comics each do five minutes. And putting it up there, we're trying to expose the world to as many good young comics as we can find, and not just stand-ups. We have improvisers on, on our, our festival. We have, you know, short comedy films. We have films made in quarantine. 
We're trying to let people know that comedy as an art form is still there. We've partnered with a site called Zerb, X-E-R-B dot TV. So if you're looking for the festival, you can either go to our website, which is nyundergroundcomedy.com or zerb.tv. You can find the New York City, uh, New York Underground Comedy Festival. Um, and you can watch, there's over 20 hours of content that comics have posted up on our festival site, which is amazing. So you put it into nine events. So you can buy one event for $5. You can buy, you know, a magic pass for 25 and watch the whole damn thing. Um, however you want to ingest it, you can. The, uh, the Zoom shows are individual tickets, like tonight. Tonight's show is, because it's mostly young comics, it's pay what you can. There's no, there's no price set. So if you want to pay, you know, $45, we're happy to have it. If you want to pay $0.30, cents, we're happy to have that too. We're parceling out, you know, as much of the proceeds as we can over to the three charities. Our, our hope is to get all the charities over their mission lines. Um, and, and we've made some significance, but each of them still need a little bit more help to get where they're going. So you could do a lot of good, a lot of good raising money for charities. You could do a lot of good raising morale of young comedians. And you can also do all that good while you're sitting in your living room laughing your ass off. And I, I can't think of a better way to help than that. Um, no, I think that's an, that's an amazing way to help. Uh, have you, have you, how have you found the virtual shows? Um, <clears throat> just, okay, let's remember, I've been doing this 36, 37, how, wow. how old am I? Holy shit. Uh, 30 <laughs> some odd years. I think 36 years. Um, I've been doing this 36 years, so it's weird for me because, like I said earlier, I don't like change. So, you know, when I've performed on the, the virtual shows, it's like, hmm, all right, this is a slightly different animal. Um, but here's the amazing thing. Unlike other people who think that, you know, this pandemic is going to kill comedy, when the pandemic's over, Zoom shows are still going to be part of our culture. We're still going to have these online comedy clubs, you know, and it's still going to be available for people that want to watch from the comfort of their own homes. And I think that we've opened up the market as opposed to closing it. So I think it's something we all need to learn as performers. Um, the the lag in the laughter is difficult to deal with, um, and you you do have to have you do have to have stones of steel to just perform without being able to have that immediate audience contact. But you know, after I did three or four of them, it, it felt like a new normal. It's still not my first choice. I'd still love to be in a big old theater with 500 people, all the seats pointed at the stage and me doing my thing. That's still my goal, you know, but this is, you know, an amazing way to connect. And the weirder thing is, um, and I don't know if comics will like or dislike this, the audience connection is deeper when we're doing the Zoom shows. Because when I'm doing the Zoom shows, oddly I've had people find my PayPal and just give me money. Like, hey, you were entertaining. You know, here's a tip. You know, in in all the years of stand-up, excluding when I did mob shows in Brooklyn, 
you know, nobody ever hit me. You know, the mobsters in Brooklyn picked everybody. You know, but, I was about to say, you know, I was like, that, that just, I like how you just sort of threw that in there. So excluding what I did mob yeah. shows in Brooklyn. Wow, that sounds like a yeah. story. Yeah, well, yeah. You've got to remember, the 80s were a different time. Um, so it, it's, it's been odd that I've been tipped. I've started full-on conversations with people online, you know, audience members online. Um, every Zoom show I do, I, I notice an uptick in all my social media. More fans on Twitter, more fans, you know, following my, my Facebook fan page, more fans following, you know, my Instagram. It's amazing how much more personal it is. And I think it's more personal because, a, they were in a room with you and experienced you live, but B, you also brought them something at a time when they needed it. So as a practical matter, do you take a pause, like when, you, like you do a joke, and if you do a joke that you're very confident works, um, do you wait? Do you kind of let the, let the air in there, um, or do you just kind of barrel through? No, I, I wait. I absolutely wait. You know, it's, it, it's incredible. That, that's what I mean by you, you have to have stones of steel. You know, you, you have to be able to sit there and go, okay, I'm, <clears throat> I'm just going to relax and have as much fun as I can. And that's what you got to do. And you can't worry about, <clears throat> sorry, you can't worry about, you know, I don't hear the laughter. That's selfish. That's, yes, we want to hear the laughter because we want to hear the laughter. But you got to know that the joke hit and the joke is resonating. Yeah, no, I, I, Stones of Steel. It sounds about right. For, that, that's it, it's uh, it's hard. It's definitely not easy because you're used to getting that immediate feedback, like you said. So, but it's interesting that you think this is going to be. I don't. I don't want to use the new normal because that's been what we've been saying. But no. you know it, that this is that this is going to be an extra outlet for comedy. These Zoom shows. I think it will be. I don't think they're going away anytime soon. They're too successful. You know, the um, the show that we have tonight, we announced it on Monday morning. Um, and between Monday and now, we've sold 32 tickets online. You know, there's, because it's a Zoom show, we were able to give comps out. You know, there's another 20 comps that are there. You know, um, more tickets are selling every minute. By the time this ends, there's going to be 50 to 60 audience members, you know. And think about it. How many young comics are performing in front of 50 and 60 people? Hmm. And with the economy being as wrecked as it is right now, when you think about going to a club and paying a $25 cover and a two-beverage minimum, that's $50 per person just to walk in. That's $100. Or you and your date can buy one Zoom ticket, sit on the couch together, and watch a show. It's and drink at home. It's a new norm for a little bit. Yeah. And, and drink at home. It's a lot cheap. cheaper. Much cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm I, curious I, I, to see how it, how it all plays out because, you know, you're going to have, like, what, uh, presumably when the clubs do open, there's going to be a mandate to have, have lower capacity. So they would probably want to get additional income of, of selling tickets online. And I just, yeah, I'm just curious what that looks like. And some clubs are going to be harder hit than others. You know, when when you look at 
when you look at a venue like the Strip, which is 250 seating capacity, you look at a club like Gotham, which is 300 seating capacity, a club like, you know, uh, Caroline's, which is 400 seating capacity, they can survive. Now look at a room like Greenwich, which is seating capacity is 60. Yeah. If they have to take out a third of their seats, now they're down to 40. That's probably the profit margin. Yeah, no, no, that's that's obviously much trickier. Yes, as you say, like a Gotham or the Strip, you know, where you've got more seats. Granite's is just, yeah, it's just, you're going to be, cl- how do you get six feet from people in there? You know, like that's going to be really hard. Yeah, it is, you know, but people will find a way to do it. Um, yeah, so what are some, it, what's it, a good What's a little advice for uh, for a, a new comic? Because and because you know, and I I don't say young comic because I'm a relatively new comic myself and I'm not young. So but but so let's just say new comics. So young or old, but you know people in their first couple of years. What's what sort of a piece of advice for them? Um, well, you know, two pieces of advice for right now. Ride this out. This isn't the way it's always going to be. You know, it might take time to come back, but be patient and don't lose hope. Um, and in general, for, for young comics, take the time and learn how to talk about what you really are interested in on stage. Comedy isn't about how many jokes you tell per minute. You know, comedy's uh, about the audience feeling that they got to experience the humanity of the performer. It's a conversation. And in that conversation, you're telling stories. In that conversation... You share emotions in the conversation. You're pointing out things that you and the audience both both react to. And I think comics, new comics, all too often start out with the mindset of what does the audience want to hear me do? And I think you need to start out with what do I want to talk about and have the patience and the wherewithal to learn how to do that. You know, if, if we could get, just get the youngins to stop pandering, um, under the guise of catering because everyone's giving them what they want because they want the audience to feel comfortable and that's pandering. Come back. If you really want to talk about your childhood but don't think anybody's interested in it, talk about your childhood. Find a way to make them interested in it. If you really want to talk about politics but don't think anybody likes your political point of view, find a way to make them understand it. You know, it's incumbent on you. The, the fallacy of comedy is that everyone has to laugh at your joke. That's not what comedy is. The truth of comedy is you got to be a trusted brand. It, you know, if people want, you know, if, if people want surprisingly intelligent stories with a blue collar edge, I'm a trusted brand for those people. You know, if, if what you want is, you know, a whole bunch of one-liners, one right after another, I'm not your brand. And when you think of all the really successful comics, they all sliced out a, a niche in, in style and content. Cheech and Chong talked about a very specific drug counterculture. George Carlin talked about, you know, a, a, a counterculture with a political bent. You know, every one of them had their own slight. Nobody was going for widespread appeal. And that's what you need to do. You need to focus on what you find funny. 
Jim, I could talk to you all day, and unfortunately, we have to stop. This has been fantastic. Uh, before we get cut off, can you tell everyone where to find you on the social medias? Sure thing. Uh, on Instagram, go to Mandrinos in Exile. On uh, Twitter, it's uh, Jim Mandrinos. On Facebook, it's Jim Mandrinos. And uh, nyundergroundcomedy.com is where you find the festival. Um, I'd love it if you support me, but more importantly, go support all these young comics and go see the next generation, the guys that are going to be around long after I'm in a pine box. Go watch them perform. Well, on a personal note, thank you for putting me in the festival. I'm in there, and um, I'm an event, too, so I have told my friends and family, and now I tell everyone listening that they should get me uh, the show tonight at 7 o'clock, and you can get those tickets at nyundergroundcomedy.com. Everyone, Jim, thank you so much for, uh, for being on the show. Everyone, thank you for listening, and please stay safe. All right, thank you. Talk to you soon. Next.